Well, good morning. Welcome to those of you who are here in the room with us and those of you who are online. We're so glad to be together with you this morning. Um, just a couple of quick announcements. If you aren't receiving our emails or our texts, I'm going to invite you to fill out one of the hay cards back in the lobby, and that will just sign you up for our weekly um, emails and texts that will let you know when events are coming up and what all is happening here at Regen, so you can make sure that you can jump in on the things that you want to be involved in. And speaking of things that we would love for you to be involved in, we're going to try something new for the month of November. So we're rolling this out. We're going to see how this goes. We're going to test your listening skills. So what we would love to do is flood our social media with pictures of things that we are grateful for um, for the month of November. So how we're going to do that is there's going to be a sign-up sheet in the back. You can just sign up for one day of the month, and then you're going to either text or email your photo to Preston, um, and he'll put that up on our social media. So it can be as simple as a cup of coffee in the morning, it can be your pet, it can be your kid, it can be your friend, it can be a book you're reading. Um, it's super simple, it doesn't have to be anything um, fancy, just snap a shot of it, send it to them, and they'll post it. So I'll have that up in the back. You'll sign up today, and then we'll send out an email to everyone reminding you of what day you have, um, and from Preston, so you can just respond back to that email um, when, you have your, when your day comes up for the picture. I will also be in the back, so if you have questions, you can kind of grab me or Preston after, and we'll try to help you with that. But we would just love to see some things that we're grateful for and just share that with our community throughout the month of November. So I think that's actually all that we have for announcements, and so let's go ahead and move into um, our giving liturgy. In this season, where we can't pass our offering plates, and so giving looks different, we just want to make sure that we're connecting our heart to the heart of God, and we want to make sure that the money we're giving, that we're doing that out of a sacrificial experience of connecting with the Father. And so we're going to go ahead and read this together. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money, that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. This morning, kind of just what caught my attention was such a little thing as money. And we so rarely feel that way, right? It usually feels so big. So I just want to encourage us that and we want to lean into that generosity into who the Father has called us. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And so, Father, we come to you embattled and struggling, but we are not alone. Scripture says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so help us be in touch with that today as we turn our hearts and minds toward you. In Jesus' name, 
have a seat, y'all. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5. Our uh, staff team gathered on Thursday. Our intent is, um, as God is calling us to be a church that hungers after him, we know that uh, leaders go first. Leaders go first. And so our, our staff team, oh, oh, Julia, you're still attached to something there, girl. <laughs> our staff team met this week and we worshiped together uh, and just prayed together because we know that we're called to lead the way in that. And so um, you sing kind of messes you up a little bit. So I'm glad to be with you. And uh, we're going to talk this we're going to talk this morning about how God really does fight our battles. So let's look at Acts chapter five together. We're going to start in verse 17. And I want to invite us to think about this passage using our sanctified imagination, using our sanctified imagination to enter the story together. The apostles huddled together in the dark, praying together in the too small prison cell into which they had been smushed just hours earlier. Instead of fear, they felt anticipation. They felt impatient. The prison cell was stopping them from doing what they knew they were supposed to be doing. James and John, the sons of thunder, couldn't sit still, and Matthew fidgeted while Peter and John led them in prayer. Thomas, always the doubter, had spent most of the night telling the rest of the apostles off, I told you we were too public with our preaching. Did I not say, Thomas said, did I not say, if the, if the Sanhedrin saw us do one more miracle, we'd be toast? Mark elbowed Thomas in the ribs. We did the right thing, and you know it. So if the Sanhedrin is upset, that's between them and God. As the apostles prayed together for courage and for boldness, they didn't notice that the prison had gone quiet, that the sounds of prisoners' snores and groans had silenced James looked up and above the heads of the praying apostles and saw someone standing outside their cell. It wasn't someone, it was something. James knew in that moment, he just knew that he wasn't looking at a human being. It was a being, but not a being of this world. Matthias, the newest of the apostles, who had been chosen by lots just days before Pentecost, he whispered in shock, it's an angel. The angel, he, it, uh, smiled, a wry smile, and reached out and placed his index finger on the lock of the prison cell, which then swung open. He turned and began walking back toward the entrance of the prison, but the apostles were so stunned they didn't really move an inch. So the angel looked over his shoulder and simply said, well... The apostles scurried after the angel, passing snoozing guards and sleeping prisoners. And when they arrived at the gate of the prison, the angel turned to them and said, Go to the temple and give the people this message of life. The sun was rising as the apostles made their way across Jerusalem and into the temple complex. They were ready to preach. You see, they had just seen a miracle. 
and they were ready to get to work. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 41. 5, 17 through 41. It's a text that is intended to give you a little bit of deja vu. It's intended to make you say, haven't I read this before? You see, in Acts chapter 4, just a chapter ago, Peter and John were arrested for healing a man born lame from birth, for preaching the gospel of Jesus in the temple complex. They were not charged with any crime, but they were sternly warned They were sternly warned to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But in Acts 5, there's an intensifying. All of the apostles are arrested for preaching the name of Jesus. All of the apostles are flogged, which means beaten within an inch of their life. They are flogged for preaching the name of Jesus. And in this opening section of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 through about Acts 7, you could call this a tale of two temples. There is a growing tension and conflict between the new temple, the members of the new temple, uh, members of of the Jesus movement, uh, the new temple that is individuals and gathered believers that are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. There's the new temple and then there's the old temple, the brick and mortar structure where Israelites gathered to sacrifice the brick-and-mortar structure that was the geopolitical center of Israel's life, the geopolitical structure that was made obsolete by the arrival of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Now that each individual believer is the temple of the living God, and even more so when they gather together, what, what the early church is facing is not just a theological reality, but a political one. Because all of these people who have made a living off of Israel's worship, they saw the people of Jesus as a threat not just to Israel's faith or Israel's way of life, but to their own livelihoods. Which is why Acts 5, 17 through 20 tells us that the apostles had been imprisoned and participated in what you might call a divinely inspired jailbreak. The angel who gets the apostles out of prison gives them a command, return to the temple and preach, so the apostles do. Look with me at chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Chapter 5, starting in verse 21. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. Cue like in the background, like, bum, bum, bum. So they returned to the council and reported, The jail was securely locked and the guard standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. Verse 24, when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. This is like the end of the movie, The Italian Job, you know, or any kind of heist movie. You open the safe and the money is not there, right? It's, it's Ocean's Eleven, right? Like we have the little guy descending from the ceiling and doing all these things and the money is not there. It, it, listen, the Bible's great storytelling, right? And, and so here they go looking in the jail. Let's go get the guys. Let's go get them and flog them. And they're gone. Luke tells us that the high priest has gathered the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. This is like in Star Wars when, um, you'll all know this reference, when Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine gather all the grand moths you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? Listen, Peter and John in Acts 4, they were tried by like a subcommittee, right? 
they were tried and found innocent by a subcommittee. Well, now we've pulled out the big guns, right? Right? We have a Supreme Court nominee going before the full Senate tomorrow. That's kind of a similar pattern, right? To their shock, they find these apostles that aren't in their cell. They've gathered everybody. So everybody's feeling a little embarrassed, right? And so look what happens in verse 26. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but notice this, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Remember, Acts 2 told us they were enjoying the goodwill of all the people, right? Then they brought the apostles before the council, where the high priest confronted them. Verse 28, didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name? Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. That is exactly what Peter and John said to the subcommittee of the Sanhedrin back in chapter 4. We've got to obey God instead of any human authority. The God of our ancestors, verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him. You killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. This, the, the apostles in this moment are what my British friends would call a cheeky monkey. Because here they are on trial, and they use this as an opportunity to preach a sermon. There they are on trial. Peter says the same thing he said in chapter 4. And he says, and by the way, all of you, you, you people who crucified Jesus, if you would like to repent, you can come forward. Why don't you come down the altar and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? As you can imagine, his hearers aren't all that happy, but understand that for Peter and the apostles, they can't not preach. They can't not teach. This is not an option. This is not an opinion. It is a necessity. Jeremiah in chapter 29 says, if I say, I will, uh, chapter 20, sorry, I will not mention him, speaking of the Lord, Jeremiah says, if I say I won't mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. I feel compelled to ask you, when it comes to talking about Jesus, is there a fire shut up in your bones that makes it not an option? Like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. Jeremiah in this passage, by the way, this is not a happy praise song. This is torture. To have been so confronted with the truth of the gospel, to have it so deep inside of you, you can't hold it in. A star, when it's exploding, can't hold all that energy in. It's got to go somewhere. There is a fire shut up in my bones, and I cannot hold it in. And so the apostles say, we've got to obey God rather than a human authority. Because we are witnesses of these things. And as you can imagine, his hearers aren't that impressed. They don't, they don't leave the Sanhedrin and say, oh, good sermon, pastor. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, the high council was furious. Do you know what the word furious means in the Greek there? It means really mad. They decided to kill them. Okay, now it's real. But one member of a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law, respected by all the people. In Galatians 2, Paul tells us that he was personally trained by Gamaliel. 
this guy has got some chops, okay? This guy's the smart kid in the class. This is the guy whose hand goes up first. So you can't help but wonder if when Gamaliel speaks up, everybody's like, A man named Gamaliel, who's an expert in religious law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men be sent outside in the council chamber for a while. Verse 35. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care of what you are planning to do to these men. Notice the pronouns, okay? Let's nerd out about pronouns. Take care of what you are planning to do to these men. You know, some time ago, he says, there was that man named Thutis who pretended to be someone great, and about 400 others joined him, but he was killed. And all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him. He was killed too. And all his followers were scattered. So my advice is this. Leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel gives the Sanhedrin a little history lesson. He says, remember all of those other people who claimed to be a Messiah? Y'all, Jesus wasn't the first person to claim to be Israel's Messiah. He was just the first person to actually be Israel's Messiah. In the 400 years before the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New, there is a long line of men pretending to be who Jesus actually was. Men who, to Gamaliel's point, gather a group of followers, but after they die, their followers scatter. What Gamaliel's actually making a point about is an important apologetic about the reliability and truthfulness of the claims of Jesus. One of the knocks against Christianity for well on 2,000 years has been that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Jesus isn't really who he said he was. He may have been a good moral teacher, but the 12 men who followed him invented a series of stories to give themselves power. I don't think any 12 men are that powerful. If Watergate can be revealed, so could a, could a hoax like this. What, what Gamaliel is saying, despite himself, he's offering an apologetic defense for the truthfulness of Christianity because 2,000 years after Gamaliel said, let them go, and if it really is God, it'll be real. See, he was right. One of the best defenses for the reliability of the claims of Jesus is that you and I are here today, that you could be anywhere doing anything, but you're here. Why? Because Jesus wasn't just a false messiah who gathered some guys together and then they dispersed shortly after he died. No, they turned the world upside down. This is the way and the truth and the life. And Gamaliel's right. He makes an important point. He says opposing the Jesus movement might put us on the wrong side of God. Oh boy. So Luke says this in chapter Five, starting in verse 40. The others accepted this advice and they called in the apostles and had them flogged and then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Verse 41, the apostles left the high council, notice this, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. 
The apostles are, are flogged. They are beaten within an inch of their life. They are ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? They speak in the name of Jesus. They speak in the name of Jesus and they, they respond to suffering with joy. They rejoice because they have been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Look at this. Look closely. Bruised and bloodied, the apostles leave their flogging rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. What Luke is telling us is this. Suffering for Jesus is not to be received as a violation of my freedom or a loss of my personal rights. Instead, suffering for Jesus is the necessary and logical outcome of following Jesus. Suffering for Jesus is the necessary and logical outcome of laying down our lives for the kingdom. Suffering for Jesus is an honor. Suffering for Jesus is a privilege. Suffering for Jesus is cause for joy. Jesus says, blessed are you. That word blessed means congratulations. Congratulations, here's your prize. Congratulations are due to you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Leap for joy! For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Listen, because suffering for Jesus is an honor and a privilege and a joy, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he also says in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to flip over there with me, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, go eat pizza. GEP, go eat pizza. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. He says, he says this, Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ, verse 9, and become one with him. I no longer count my righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And everybody is like, yeah, sign me up until the comma. I, I want to suffer with him. I want to share in his death, Paul says, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I count it all as loss, Paul says, that I might suffer with him, that I might be made like him with my death. Because, Jesus, because suffering for Jesus, hear me on this, because suffering for Jesus is an honor and a privilege and a joy we do not look to presidents or to politicians to protect us from persecution. Because suffering for Jesus is an honor and a privilege and a joy we do not look to presidents or politicians to protect us from persecution. We are citizens of heaven. We are sojourners and exiles whose fate 
is decided, whose lives are protected by a good and gracious king. So when suffering comes, so when suffering comes, in a decade or three, and at whose hand only the Father knows, when suffering comes, we will sing with our ancestors who were thrown to lions and crucified upside down and drowned and hanged and abducted in the middle of the night. We will sing, let, good and kindred, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And because his kingdom is forever, the apostles in Acts 5 do the unthinkable. They have been charged not to preach in the name of Jesus. They have been beaten for doing so, and yet Luke says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles are doing exactly what Jack is spending a lot of his days doing right now, doing the exact opposite of what I tell him to do. And this is good and right, and I want him to have resilience and strong will and a good no. But getting him there is, it's a bear, right? They do exactly what they've been told not to do. They preach in the temple. They go knocking on doors. They proclaim that they don't just speak in the name of Jesus. They say, by the way, Jesus is the Messiah. When faced with circumstances outside of their control... The apostles have one option. They have one option. They keep doing exactly what it is that God told them to do. Do you see that? When faced with circumstances outside their control, the apostles have only one option. They keep doing exactly what God told them to do. They keep doing it because they know God has their backs. The Sanhedrin, this council of Jewish leadership, by the way, they know they're not the enemy either because their fight is not against flesh and blood. Their fight is not against flesh and blood. The apostles keep doing what God has called them to do because they know that their human opponents, who aren't even really their opponents at all, that their human opponents are fighting God. That's what Gamaliel says. If we're not careful, we're going to end up fighting God. These apostles know exactly what God said to Moses all those centuries ago when Moses was faced with circumstances outside his control. The Lord said, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So here's what I'm here to tell you today. When you face a circumstance outside your control, when, not if, when you face a circumstance outside your control, you keep doing exactly what God's called you to do. You keep doing exactly what God's told, told you to do. You do not deviate you do not retreat, you do not doubt, you don't rethink, you persevere, in fact, you press in. You press in. The circumstances may have changed, but the call to obedience has not. The circumstances may have changed, but the call to obedience has not. So you take the next step. We are going to face circumstances outside of our control. We will face suffering, we will face opposition. You might be a parent navigating uncharted parental waters. You might own a business and it might not be going all that well. Your marriage might be on the rocks. Your financial situation is in question. What you hold dear, a place, a person, 
has been taken from you. Someone you trust has stabbed you in the back. You've been diagnosed with cancer. When you face circumstances outside your control, you keep doing exactly what God has told you to do. A few years ago, I, I found myself in a circumstance outside my control. Someone had a disagreement with me and took it on themselves to destroy my reputation. So someone would come to Regen and they would check in and they would say, uh, and they would check in on Regen and say I was attending and if that person was friends with them, they would comment, direct message me about this pastor. I was sick to my stomach. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I didn't want to do anything at all, anything. So I called my mentor and he gave me the strangest advice. He said, don't defend yourself and keep doing exactly what it is you're doing. When we face circumstances outside of our control, we keep doing exactly what it is that God has called us to do. With weak knees and sick stomachs and anxious hearts and sleepless nights, we keep doing exactly, exactly what it is that God has told us to do. A few months ago, we, we found ourselves in a situation outside of our control, didn't we? Kyle sent you a little email that said, hey, we're not gonna have church for two weeks. Hey, we're, we're not going to have church for about four more. And then Mother's Day came and went. Easter had come and gone. The circumstance changed. So the only option we had was to keep doing exactly what it was we were called to do. What we learned in that moment is a vital, absolutely necessary, I believe, preparatory lesson for what is to come. The church is not a building. So we kept doing exactly what it is we're called to do. We were still called to care for one another. We were still called to seek after God. We were still called to praise and prayer. We were still called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we kept doing what we were called to do. And you know when you're watching TV, this doesn't happen if you only watch Netflix. This happens on, there's this invention from the 1900s. It's called cable. You'll be watching and then all of a sudden it'll go and then it'll say what? This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Do you know what this spring was? Do you know what whatever COVID-19 looks like this winter is? Do you know what COVID-19 is? COVID-19, this is a test. This is a test. It's getting harder to be the church our culture is changing by the minute. It's cooling to the idea of absolute truth. It's cooling to reception of the good news of Jesus. And by the way, persecution, I mean real persecution that our brothers and sisters face in China and Africa and Southeast Asia, it's not even on our radar. It's not even on our radar. COVID-19 is a test. It is a preparation for what it means to be the people of Jesus in difficult circumstances. Being Christian in America got harder for six months and one in four church attending adults stopped attending church. We've seen study after study after study of this in the last six months. About six weeks into the reality of COVID, one in four church going Christians stopped attending church. 
being a Christian in America got hard for a minute, a minute, and one in four Christians called it quits. And it hasn't even really gotten hard yet. What is the only thing certain in life? I'm asking, what is the only thing that you can be certain of in life? Jesus is not the answer, even though you'd think it is. That comes next. That's answer number. That's the change. Change. Throughout your life, throughout my life, circumstances are going to change. And finding the resilience we need to face those challenges, to adapt, to flourish in challenging seasons, comes from keeping our eyes on what has not changed. Hear me. When everything around you is changing, you keep your eyes on what is not changing. Resilience comes from staying attuned to the unchanging melody of obedience and calling, even when the beat goes away and you lose your rhythm. And let me tell you what, <clears throat> you're going to fail. <laughs> I don't know if that's right. You're going to fail. You're going to face a new situation, an un a circumstance outside of your control. You're going to face a new situation. You're going to do your best, and your best won't be good enough. You'll fall short. You'll fail. But you are not alone in your failure. You are not alone in your failure. Our failure is not fatal. And instead, it's fertile ground for transformation into the way of Jesus and the image of Jesus. Our failure is fertile soil for fresh transformation. And let me tell you why. Because when we were utterly helpless, Jesus came, came to get us. He was reviled and mocked and persecuted and abandoned and misunderstood. And in the process, Jesus was so overwhelmed that he sweat blood. Jesus, knowing that this world was not his home, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and in his death and in his death and resurrection, he created for himself a people who have a glorious inheritance, an eternal home, and an unchanging mission. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. You will fail. You will be overwhelmed. You might even die. But our failure and our fragility is not the end of the story. Because Jesus, because Jesus, because Jesus, whose weakness is stronger than human strength, carries us through to the very end and beyond. And today he invites you, 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 online here, you to a fresh trust in him. A fresh trust in him even in the midst of changing circumstances. So come hell or high water, come suffering or persecution or nakedness 
or famine or sword, hear the good news. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Steph's going to lead us. First of all, I want to invite anyone who, um, after the service, would like prayer. The oversight team will be in the Otterbine room. So if you'd like prayer for something that's going on in your life, um, for healing, we just invite you to come back. We'd love to pray with you. Um, my first question for you this morning is, what's between you and Jesus? What's, what's standing between you and him? Um, as Kyle talked about today, he wants all of you. He wants you all in. And so what, what is it that's, that's standing between you? My second thing is, and this first just kept coming to mind, so I don't know if this is something that the Father has for someone, but God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so as we kind of talk about these heavy things, it's easy to to maybe wring our hands or to start to think um, what-if thoughts. And I think the encouragement from the Father is just that he is with you and that he has given you a spirit of power. He is giving us a spirit um, to go and to tell and to carry out that great commission. So... We're going to just take a couple minutes, and then um, the worship team will lead us. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. It's been so good to be with you today here in the room and online. I love you. The Lord fights for you, okay? So we love you. We'll see you next time.